Hello, storytellers. How do you feel when I say to you that all of your beliefs, all of them, are made-up stories? Do you resist that? It makes sense if you do. Why should you want to believe that your beliefs are just stories? After all, your beliefs are helping you to get through life. They make you feel secure, and they make you feel that you can understand the world around you. They help you to make sense of things. So a statement that threatens to take that away can be off-putting, can be threatening. I get it. I'm going to take you on a journey today to explore this uh, this concept, this idea that all beliefs are made-up stories. And a lot of it is going to be scary. But if you hang around till the end, I promise to bring you out the other side and to explain and to show you how powerful and positive all of this can be. Let's begin by imagining. Imagine that you find someone who has been killed. You find the dead body, and it's obvious that the person was murdered because, okay, their throat was slashed, the legs have been broken, and you immediately do the right thing. You call 911, the police come, and you explain that you found this body. And the police thank you, and they also bring you in for some questioning. When you go in for the questioning, you, of course, never imagine that you should call a lawyer. After all, you are a good citizen. You know that you haven't done anything wrong. Why would you need a lawyer? So you sit down, and the police begin to ask you questions, and you volunteer all of your answers. You have nothing to hide. And then, after about 15 or 16 hours of questioning, you confess to the murder. Now, I know that most of you are thinking, if not all of you, that is ridiculous. That would never, never happen to me. It probably won't, and I certainly hope that it never does, but it has happened to an individual. As a matter of fact, this same kind of scenario of people being led into false confessions because they eventually started to believe a narrative in their heads is more common than we would like to think. What I just described to you comes from a very real event. A young man named Peter Riley, I believe it was around 1976, he actually came home one night and he found his mother murdered. She was lying in a pool of blood. Her throat had been slashed and her legs had been broken. He was stunned 
of course, totally in a state of shock, but he managed to call the police. And when they came, they found him just kind of staring into space. But he was able to explain to them what happened, and they took him in. And yes, eventually, he confessed to this murder. Now, where am I getting this information? Um, I just finished reading a very powerful book that is not about murders. It's about how the mind works and about how you can persuade people of things and how you and I are persuaded of things unconsciously. And the book is called Persuasion, Not Persuasion, but Persuasion, A Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade. It's by Robert Cialdini, also known for another famous book of his called Influence. You can get these books for free as a listener to this podcast on Audible by simply going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. This is really an incredible book to listen to when you're driving, when you're working out, etc. I'm going to take some, I'm going to read to you just a few short excerpts from the book. One is a description of what happened to Peter Riley when he was being interrogated. Quote, Over a period of 16 hours, he was interrogated by a rotating team of four police officers, including a polygraph operator who informed Peter that, according to the lie detector, he had killed his mother. That exchange, as recorded in the interrogation's transcript, left little question of the operator's certainty in the matter. And here's the dialogue, four exchanges between Peter and the polygraph operator. Peter, does that actually read my brain? Polygraph operator, definitely, definitely. Peter, would it definitely be me? Could it have been someone else? Polygraph operator, no way. Not from these reactions. And Cialdini goes on to explain, he says, actually, the results of polygraph examinations are far from infallible, even in the hands of experts. In fact, because of their unreliability, they are banned as evidence in the courts of many states and countries. Another excerpt from the book. The chief interrogator then told Peter falsely that physical evidence had been obtained proving his guilt. He also suggested to the boy how he could have done it without remembering the event. He had become furious with his mother and erupted into a murderous fit during which he slaughtered her, and now he had repressed the horrible memory. It was their job, Peter's and his, to dig, dig, dig at the boy's subconscious until the memory surfaced. Dig, 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 they did, exploring every way to bring back that memory until Peter began to recall. 
dimly at first, but then more vividly, slashing his mother's throat and stomping on her body. By the time the interrogation was over, these imaginations had become reality for both the interrogators and Peter. Let's pause for a moment and think about what I just read to you. These imaginations had become reality. Wow. And here's another short exchange between an interrogator and Peter. Interrogator. But you recall cutting her throat with a straight razor. Peter, it's hard to say. I I, I think I recall doing it. I, I mean, I imagine myself doing it. it. It's coming out of the back of my head. Interrogator, how about her legs? What kind of vision do we get there? Can you remember stomping her legs? Peter, you say it, then I imagine I'm doing it. Interrogator. You're not imagining anything. I think the truth is starting to come out. You want it out. Peter, I I, I know. Wow. And yes, Peter went to trial. And uh, by the way, the next morning when he woke up in a jail cell, he wasn't exhausted anymore because, I mean, they wore him down. They interrogated him for 16 hours. And so his defenses were down. He was... His mind wasn't that clear. But when he had rested and he woke up in the cell, he thought about what he had said. And he goes, no, 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 no way. I didn't do that. But guess what? He had given the confession and it was too late. So this made-up story became his reality. And he did go to jail. He served the sentence I'm not sure exactly how many years. It's not um, stated in the book. But eventually he got out. And interestingly enough, ironically and sadly, the only time that people began to consider that maybe this boy, who was now a young man, was telling the truth when he said he hadn't done it, was when a very famous person came to his support. That famous person was the playwright Arthur Miller. And if you haven't heard of Arthur Miller, he has been by many considered to be one of the greatest uh, playwrights of the 20th century. He wrote a play called Death of a Salesman, among others. And he was also married to Marilyn Monroe. He was a pretty high-profile guy. So Miller was sat on a panel, and he was supporting and defending the idea that this young man probably was coerced into giving a false confession. So why would Miller be interested in this? Well, he explained his presence on the panel, I'm reading now from the book, as due to a long-standing concern with the business of confessions in my life as well as in my plays. During the period of anti-communist fervor in the United States in the 1950s, several of Miller's friends and acquaintances were summoned to appear at hearings before congressional committees. There they were pushed 
in calculated questioning to confess to Communist Party affiliations as well as to knowing and then revealing the names of members of the party prominent in the entertainment world. Miller himself was subpoenaed by the U.S. House of Un-American Activities Committee and was blacklisted, fined, and denied a passport for failing to answer all the chairman's questions. Now, the role of confessions in Miller's plays can be seen in The Crucible, the most frequently produced of all his works. Although set in 1692 during the Salem witchcraft trials, Miller wrote it allegorically to reflect the form of loaded questioning he witnessed in congressional hearings and that he later recognized in the Peter Riley case. This is fascinating stuff, guys. I'm going to continue to read from Cialdini's book. Miller's comments on the panel with Riley were relatively brief, but they included an account of a meeting he had in New York with a Chinese woman named Nian Cheng. During Communist China's Cultural Revolution of the 1960s and 70s, which was intended to purge the country of all capitalist elements, she was subjected to harsh interrogations designed to get her to confess to being an anti-communist and a spy. With tear-rimmed eyes, Nien related to the playwright her deep feelings upon seeing, after her eventual release from prison, a production of The Crucible in her native country. At the time, she was sure that parts of the dialogue had been rewritten by its Chinese director to connect with national audiences because the questions asked of the accused in the play were exactly the same as the questions I had been asked by the cultural revolutionaries. No American, she thought, could have known these precise wordings, phrasings, and sequencings. She was shocked to hear Miller reply that he had taken the questions from the record of the 1692 Salem witchcraft trials and that they were the same as those that were deployed within the House on american Activities Committee hearings. Later, it was the uncanny match to those in the Riley interrogation that prompted Miller to get involved in Peter's defense. A scary implication arises from Miller's story. Certainly, remarkably similar and effective practices have been developed over many years that enable investigators in all manner of places and for all manner of purposes to wring statements of guilt from suspects, sometimes innocent ones. Guys, so I know what some of you are thinking, and again, I get it. You're thinking, okay, this is a very extreme case. Peter Riley was probably a a very, maybe he was not a balanced and stable individual, and uh, he may have been suffering from emotional problems that we don't know about, and that's not me. I get it. The need to say that's not me is the same as the need to say, I know that, I know that, when we really don't know that, all we know is an idea, we don't know the experience. 
And we want to say it because if we want to say it to defend ourselves because it's scary to admit that we could be that vulnerable. But I want to suggest that as vivid and as quote-unquote real as anything that you think is a hard fact about life and the world could be, and I think is, something that your imagination has constructed so that you can navigate through life safely. I'm going to jump to something that's going to sound like, for a moment, like it's not related. Trust me, it is. Psychedelic drug experiences. If a person drops acid, LSD, suddenly they look at the world and everything seems, I mean, fluid. They can see, look at a wall and it seems to move. They begin to imagine things that, quote-unquote, aren't there. And their entire vision of the world seems like a weird dream. If it becomes a scary dream, they call this a bad trip. It can also be a very pleasant dream, but nonetheless, a chaotic experience. Well, they know in studying psychedelic experiences that all that's really happening is that the veil of reality has been lifted and that now we're seeing through to the essence of what is real. Look, if you sit at a table, you know, quote-unquote, know that that table is solid, correct? Well, if you, if, you, if you really know anything about science, you know that it's not solid. It's made up of molecules and neutrons, etc., and that these particles are moving. We know that it looks solid, it feels solid, and it's good that it does because it would be kind of difficult to negotiate day-to-day living without the fiction, without the story, that it's solid. But the truth of it is that it's not solid. And so I'm going to... I just remembered a powerful affirmation from a course I took called Enlightened Wizard Training. I am comfortable with chaos, ambiguity, and the unknown. And I'm suggesting to you that in order to start to believe that your thoughts that feel and seem so real are just constructs. Now, remember that I promised you that you say, well, what's the point of this? If that's true, then everything is crazy and nothing makes any sense. No, I don't feel that way. Here's the positive frame on all of this. If this is true, just allow this question to play in your mind for a moment and say, what if this is true? I'm willing to accept that it might be true that all of my beliefs are made-up stories, then begin to examine those beliefs that cause you a lot of pain, things that you think are unchangeable in your life that cause you sorrow, unhappiness, 
that make you feel stuck and say, well, if all stories and beliefs, I mean, if all beliefs and stories, then these are too, which means I have the power to change them. It also means that you may have accepted a very limiting view of reality and the way you justify accepting it is with this phrase, that's the way things are. I'm a mature person, so I accept the way things are. But if you're willing to take that leap and say, well, maybe this is the way things are only because I have I don't challenge them, then you have the power to create a new narrative and pull it from your dreams, the things that you would love to be, not what you perceive is, but what you perceive should be or you would love to have as a reality and then begin to live into it. Now, this is not woo-woo. As a matter of fact, Unfortunately, in this touchy-feely age of, you know, thinking and it happens, for a lot of people, they think all you got to do is have the thought, have a little picture in your head, and bingo, it should appear. No, this takes work. It takes work to undo the narratives that are going to stubbornly want to stick around in your head and make you feel that they are unchangeable reality. That's why only a small percentage of people break out of the prison of their made-up narratives and start to live into new, more empowering, enriching ones. I know because I've been on this journey since, well, consciously on this journey. I think I've been on it all my life, but consciously embarked on serious personal development work in 2006. It's now 2020. So, you know, um, 14 years. And the more that I do the work, the more my reality begins to change for the better. There were so many negative things I used to believe about myself that I no longer allow. And as a result, I'm happier more interesting, more creative human being. What would you love to have that you feel you don't and that that's the way it is? Are you willing to take a leap of faith? It's going to be just faith at first. You won't have the proof until you start to work on it. But are you willing to take that leap of faith and begin to trust that you can make your dreams real. Start small. You don't have to create some grandiose dream immediately. Start with something small and work at it methodically. Set it as a specific goal of vision. Give it a deadline. Really spell out what it would look like for you to have that in your life. Anything. Maybe it's something like you might have gotten to a point where you believe, you know what, all of my relationships have failed. I don't believe I'll ever have a good one again, and that's the way it is, and it's okay. A lot of people, you know, don't have 
great intimate relationships in their lives and they're just fine. Now, what if you took the risk to believe, hey, I can have a great relationship, then begin to paint a picture of exactly what that would look like. In other words, what kind of person would you be involved with? And what would your life together, let's say, on a simple day, be like that would bring more joy into your life? What practical steps can you take to make this happen? I want to leave you with this very positive possibility. And when I say that if you change your story, you will change your life, it's not just some nice new age woo-woo concept, you know, to make you feel giddy and good for 20 minutes or an hour. It's something profound. I'm talking about real, permanent transformation. You may not want that, or you may think you don't want it. You may want to play safe. Okay, I'm not going to judge you for that. But what if you're willing to take a risk, feel really uncomfortable, and embark on this adventure of transformation? What? is possible then.